you know, when people sing, I get different ideas in my mind. Just sometimes they're strange, and I just had one. I want these three ladies to go, Mrs. Brown and I. They're so good. They're as good as any professional entertainers, I'll tell you. I had this idea. These three ladies, Miss Brown and I, we're going to go to Shipshawan, and I'm going to, for a free chicken dinner, I'm their agent, and I'll have them sing a song, and we'll all get dinner and drive home. Doesn't that sound like a good idea? My goodness. That was wonderful. Matthew, I said chapter two, but we're actually in chapter one for a little bit. Again, please don't miss the cantata. You'll be blessed. And I just want to mention church. Uh, your support is important. We'll have visitors, but you know the choir and the actors, they've been practicing for months uh, to put this on to glorify the Lord. And it, it would just be nice if people came and supported that. And, and you won't be sorry. I, I promise you. I, I literally had tears in my eyes several times. Matthew 1, verse 18, and you're going to hear a lot of Christmas you have. Don't get offended because you hear about Christmas at church. <clears throat> My goodness, I'm offended. We see so much of Halloween, like in August, and then I love to celebrate Thanksgiving, and you can't even get to Christmas. Thanksgiving, or Thanksgiving, it's already Christmas stuff. Uh, in the fall. But I love Christmas. I love the celebration of Christmas. And, uh, but if we preach on th Christmas here for a few services in the month of December, you'll forgive us, but we want to just celebrate and magnify Jesus and, and Christmas. And today I want to preach a thought on the considerations of the very first Christmas. Considerations. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, that's key, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was mindful to put her away privately. But while... He thought on these things. Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall, bear, she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins." Now all this, now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord by the prophet, saying, "Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us." Considerations of the very first Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this sweet service we've had thus far. And Lord, it's been a good day to be in your house already. The Sunday school lesson helped me. These beautiful songs. And now this text. I pray you give me liberty. And Lord, help me to use wisdom as I preach these thoughts that you helped me with this week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, I'm going to start with a kind of, it might even be a disturbing thought, so hang with me as I explain myself. What if, have you ever considered what if Jesus didn't come? Now, I don't like it to think about, but just say with me. What if Jesus didn't come? What, what if he wasn't born? What if he didn't die in an old rugged cross? What if he didn't raise again the third day from the grave? I read a poem early this week, and it kind of got me thinking along these lines. It's called Christmas Meditation. Suppose that Christ has not been born that far away Judean morn. Suppose that God, whose mighty hand created worlds, had never planned a way for man to be redeemed. Suppose the wise men only dreamed that guiding star whose light still glows down through the centuries. Suppose Christ never walked here in men's sight, or our blessed way and truth the light. Suppose he counted all the costs and never cared that we were lost, and never died for you and me, nor shed his blood on Calvary upon a shameful cross. Suppose that having died, he never rose, and there was none with power to save our souls from death beyond the grave. As far as piteous heathen know, these things that I supposed are so. Martha Nicholson wrote that. What if, and here's my, no, I can't think that way. I don't want to think that way because it's not true. I can't wrap my mind around that. You see, I've been saved now. I've been born again and saved for most of my adult life. And there's just no way I can contemplate no Jesus, no birth, no, no Savior, no resurrection, no eternal life. I just can't. And I won't. But here's the truth. Most of our unregenerate lost world thinks that way. They've been taught to think that way. They've been trained to imagine, what if there was no Christ? We live in a world that daily wonders and doubts and has determined in their hearts and their thoughts the possibility and the determined position that Jesus Christ is nothing but a myth, mere folklore. It's true, that's how they think. You don't think so, but past generations believed like us. But the current generations do not believe in Christmas or Christ or Christianity. It's just a different holiday for them to revel and get drunk and, and do all the things they want to do. But they don't want to consider the real Christmas, the first Christmas. They don't want to believe nor receive Christ and the true meaning of this season. I'd like to pose a question. I'd like to ask this question. Okay, no Christ, no Christmas, no need of Christianity. Here's my question. What if it is true? What if the biblical record of Jesus and the first Christmas is all true? That's the way I'd like to think. And that's the way I believe. Based on the scriptures based on the Holy Ghost that resides in me, and it's that second witness to the truth of his word. I would like to say instead to the doubters, to the naysayers, to the suspicious, 
to the rebellious, to the professing atheist, the wandering agnostic. What if it were all true? Friend, it is. And I want to talk today about the evidence of Christmas and how it outweighs all the negative thoughts that the world can come up with. The incarnation, we read, God with us is true. The truth of the good news of Christmas and the message of Christ and his nativity, it's recorded. It's documented. It's substantiated in many records, not just the biblical record. That's our main book, amen, the Bible. But all the evidences of Jesus historically, archaeology, all these truths that we're going to talk about today, hopefully, I told Brother Tom I got like a book up here, so I, I got to use wisdom. I'll use Jonathan's line, fear not! I won't preach at all. But this week I studied, and the Lord just blessed me, and I just couldn't quit typing, and before I got it done, I couldn't imagine. I mean, this is like a five-part sermon, but okay, moving on. The whirling says of our faith, they say to us things like this, your beliefs concerning Christ and Christmas are mere blind faith. They say you have no real concrete evidence to support this Jesus theory of yours. I say not so. There's enormous historical fact and documentation and the biblical record to prove the validity of Christ and Christmas and the Christian faith. But here's the truth. The ultimate decision, after hearing all the facts, and we don't have all the facts, it would take us years to go through all the facts, all the records, all the documents, all the substantiated evidence of Jesus' birth and life and death and the Christian faith. It would take years. But the ultimate decision to believe on and follow Jesus Christ is by faith. Faith. It's always been a matter of faith. Even the unbelievers have faith in their, their ideas and philosophies. Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 6 tells us, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 and, and verse 8 these words, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Thank God for the gift of faith. Jesus said in Matthew 18 too, that we must become as little children. we got a lot of little children in the back being ministered to, some in the nursery being cared for. And then the young peanut kids are being taught of Christ, the Christmas story, biblical story. Jesus said that we must become as little children. This was an answer to his own disciples' question when they asked Jesus, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Matthew 18 in verse 1. In response to their question, the Lord called little children to come unto him. They they gathered him. I want to tell you something. Children weren't afraid of Jesus. They were desirable. They desired Jesus. They came and sat in his... You can't get a child. child have the, they have a unique way of knowing somebody's good or bad or 
friendly or mean, and they would, they would gravitate to And he'd pick them up, and he'd, he'd be kind to them. He'd speak to them. He loved them. And he used them as an illustration here. The Lord called little children to come to him, and he added, unless we change our minds and come to him like little children, we will not enter into heaven. This means to come to him means lowliness, low, uh, lowliness. It means humility. It means simple faith. Now, we we're come as, as a child in simple faith. Well, that's not really how it, it's quoted. But what it's saying is we have to possess childlike modesty and teachable spirit and simple faith. We have to come humbly and lowly and unpretentious. We need to come to him with childlike faith, like a child would place in Christ, and they did place a lot of faith in Jesus Christ. Children, by their very nature, receive the truths of the Bible in simple faith. Go back there and watch them. Listen to their comments in a junior church classroom, in a Sunday school classroom. They're naturally, what are they naturally? They're open. Their hearts are honest. They're sincere. They have a willingness to hear and to accept the things of God with a ready mind and a joyful attitude. Amen. That's why it's so important, church, that we reach people at a young age. That's why the children's ministry is so important. That's why it's good to get the buses out and have VBS and to, and to do uh, uh, summer uh, park clubs and all the things we can do to reach children because here's what happens to children. They grow up far too fast today. They become very suspicious and untrusty at a very early age today. They get to the point where they get so skewed in their thinking, they want nothing to do with church, God. That comes from other people and their attitudes towards Christ and the Bible and Christianity. The hardships and hurts of life have not gotten to them yet, but you know, it used to be, it used to be it didn't hit kids until they were like 12 or 13. Now it's like Six and seven. Amen. They see so much junk on TV and they, they get so much poison from family and friends. and They're so skeptical today, even young. And they're hard. And they're doubtful and they're suspicious. At young ages, it's important for us to reach them early. And thank God for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures. That can bring people to faith. You see, we can talk about all the evidence. The world can talk about their evidence. But it comes down to it, it's a matter of faith. A faith that is given by God. It's a gift. Hey, you think about gifts at Christmas. Thank God for the gift of faith that he put in your heart. That's a gift. And it was graciously and lovingly offered to you, but you had to receive it. Ephesians 1.13, to whom you also trusted... After that, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Never forget, Christian, that great gift God gave you. The ability to have faith and to believe on, not in, on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There are people on foreign fields that, do not have faith like you have faith in Jesus Christ because they never heard and they don't have the word. Faith cometh by hearing 
the word. We need to send missionaries. We need to support those missionaries. We need to be missionaries ourselves. And listen, don't tell them about just the church, the church, the church. Talk to them about Jesus. 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 And use the word because the word is what brings conviction. The word of God is used by the Holy Spirit to bring conviction and conversion to Christianity. This morning, I want to consider the first Christmas. The actual physical evidence of Jesus is one of the best established facts of all human history. There are thousands of early manuscripts that survive, (coughs) that survive in spite of all the efforts of an unbelieving world to (coughs) to remove them from society. It's amazing. And I'm going to tell you some, this is a very didactic, a very teaching sermon today, but it's good. We need to hear that. And maybe you can use some of this as you witness, but you know, there's so many early manuscripts documenting and, and supporting a real Christ and a real Christmas and the, the, the truth of Christianity. But it's amazing they do exist in such a large format after the enemy and the world tried to annihilate all the truth. I want to consider Christmas in Christ. First of all, the hard evidence of the birth and existence of Jesus Christ that's collected in the scriptures. And we won't take a long time, but go to, to, uh, because of time, go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. The basic two documentations of Christ's birth, it's all through the Bible, but the, the, the documentation of his first birth are found in Matthew and found in Luke. And in Luke's gospel, chapter 1, it says, for as much as, uh, Luke chapter 1, for as much as many have taken in hand and set forth the order of declaration of those things which are, watch it, mostly, surely believed among us. So he's talking about things that they, they believed on even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning, here's the key, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, O most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest, why did he write? That thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. And he's going to give now instruction. The Holy Spirit inspired and the Holy Spirit preserved this record, this document, this manuscript. We get to chapter 2, of course, and we get to the main part. And it came to pass in those days when there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And the taxing was first made with Cyrenius was governor of Syria and all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. And we know that Christmas story, and we read it to our families, and we're well acquainted with it. The Bible says that there was a man named Zacharias. He was a priest. Him and his wife, Elizabeth, had not had any children. God sent an angel, Gabriel, to tell her that they're going to have a baby. 
Zacharias was going to be a father after all those years of not ever thinking he would ever be a father. And now an angel from the Lord comes and tells him, you're going to have a boy. And here's his name, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not the Savior. He was not the deliverer. He was the forerunner. He was the one who would come and talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one that would announce him as he approached the Jordan River for his baptism. Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. This was John the Baptist, but it was all part of God's plan. And God shared his plan with those two godly people. And then the angel Gabriel came another time. He came to a virgin named Mary. Chapter 1, verse 26 and 28. For time, we won't read it. A month passed. And Mary... Excuse me, months passed and Mary was delivered in chapter 2, which we just read. Matthew's gospel also gives great detail of the account of Jesus Christ and his birth. We read part of that. It's an amazing story, but here's the truth. It is documented. It is, has been studied by historical experts, not Christian. And they believe that this record is intact. Consider the many individuals now. We're thinking about considerations of Christmas. Consider many individuals that we read in Luke chapter 1, first four verses, were eyewitnesses to the events leading up to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, to God coming into flesh. The evidence in Luke's historical account was verified by a man named Sir William Ramsey. He's known to be the world's greatest archaeologist at his time, and he was a skeptic about the scriptural documentation of this so-called man, Jesus. He studied for 30 years before he ever wrote his thesis on the evidence of the first Christmas. He started out as a total non-believer. And after 30 years of study and trying to discredit Luke's account, he found that the account of Luke was accurate in every detail. In the end of his study, he wrote that Luke was one of the greatest historians of all time. And after studying, Ramsey, who was a skeptic, came to faith in Jesus Christ, studying the Christmas story. There was a book written in the early 70s by a man. He wrote the book, and he was a lawyer, and it was called Evidence Demands a Verdict. Being a lawyer, he wanted to tear about the credibility of Jesus Christ and prove that he was a fake, a charlatan. Josh McDowell. Out of that one book came another small book, a paperback, and he had had a, a, a tag for it. He was either Lord, liar, or lunatic. And that's how he approached it. He's going to prove that this Jesus Christ was a big lie. He was a liar. Or he was a lunatic. You know what happened to him? Same thing happened to Ramsey. After years of study... He came to know him as his Lord. Now, the world may deny 
what we believe. But it's all about faith. But there's plenty of evidence. If people will just look at the evidence, both Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel have clear, compelling evidence of, an, of the amazing interviews of people that lived at that time about the biblical narrative of the nativity and the sacred family themselves. Now, we don't have time to go through all these eyewitnesses of this miracle called God with us. But I just want to list them in their chronological order. You can read them in your Bible all the time, but I'll just give them to you. Here they were, Zacharias and Elizabeth, Luke chapter 1, parents of John the Baptist. Consider the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1. He's part of three archangels. There was Michael, the war angel. There was Gabriel, the announcement or messenger angel. Lucifer, the angel of the glory of God who fell and took a, th a third of heaven with him. But Gabriel was sent to announce the birth of the Christ. Consider the Virgin Mary in Luke chapter 1, how that she took upon herself this this task of God, knowing what it would cost her, knowing what people would say about her, knowing how her family would be rejected, how her parents would be treated by others, having a baby outside of marriage? Consider the carpenter Joseph, for the Bible said he could have put her away publicly, but he wouldn't. And how an angel came and talked, he had a dream, and God talked to him in that dream about, hey, this, this woman, she is a virgin, and you will marry her. And he warned him. And Joseph obeyed God. What a man of faith. Because he knew what it would cost him. Consider the shepherds abiding in those fields. How they came and they, they were in awe. Consider the angelic host. Consider the ancient Simeon. And how God had told him that you're going to live until you see the consolation of Israel. Consider the aged Anna in Luke chapter 2, that widow that served God all those years in the temple. Consider King Herod in all of Israel, how they were, the Bible says in Matthew 2 that all, all the city was in an uproar. They were all in fear because Herod was a maniac. And all he cared about is somebody vying for his throne. Consider the chief priests and the scribes in Matthew chapter 2, how they did not want anything to do with the Christ, although they always talked about the Messiah. They really didn't want one because they had a religious sideshow going on that they didn't want disturbed. Consider the traveling magi some 18, maybe two years later. It took a while to follow that star, according to Scripture. Consider the untold number of people that watch Jesus live out his earthly days. John 1.14 says this, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we're considering today. Consider the timing of the first Christmas. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, verse uh, 4 and verse 5, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of son. Think the timing, the perfect timing, the divine timing. The time of Jesus Christ's birth was unique more than any other time known to man. This time, historically, is called the Pax Romana. 
Pax Romana means peace of Rome. Historically, now listen to this, historically this time in which Jesus came to be born in a stable, placed in a manger, was a time of political stability in a very unstable world. Why? Because Rome ruled. Pax Romana. Rome had conquered much of the known world. Europe, Asia, the known world at that time. And it was a very unusual time of peace and tranquility. We would think, how? Was Roman leading all the wars? No, no. They put down all wars. They conquered all enemies. They were in complete control. And because of that, there was peace. Roman rule expanded through Europe and Africa and Asia at the time of Christ's first advent. Listen now. According to historians, uh, estimated 138 million souls existed, and more than half of them were governed by Caesar. It was a perfect time. It was the exact time. It was the fullness of time that a Savior should come. This wasn't an accident. This is sovereign planning. Why? For us. Amen. For you and I to hear the message. For you and I to receive the message by faith. For you and I to have salvation. That's why he came. The time of Christ's coming was so unusual. During a time of political stability. Caesar Augustus ruled and reigned in Rome. And because he ruled and reigned, it was a time of, or an era of great peace because all other powers feared Roman power. And because of that, there was peace and calm and stability. Think of the timing. Consider the timing. Perfect timing for the Son of God to be born. But not only that, Rome didn't just keep peace Rome extended education, travel. Consider the highway of our God. Isaiah talked about it in chapter 38, verse 8. And a highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. Out of it shall be of those, the wayfaring man, though fools shall not err therein. Now, that has a double meaning, but part of this meaning was Nobody knew what all that meant, but Rome brought roads. Roads, traveling. They were over all the construction of roads and facilities, and they ruled travel on land and on sea. Isaiah 40, verse 3, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now we know we're talking about the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, but I believe it's also speaking about the time that he would come. The first appearance of Christ. When the, the Roman Empire took control of this known world, the world got suddenly smaller. With a net, network of roads and, and, and routes established through their conquest. And here's what, here's what it was said. All ro roads lead to Rome. It was such a big truth. The expansion of the Roman Empire caused all this construction to take place, roads and, and, and travel. And why? 
so that God would give us the Son and He would grow up among the people and He would die on a cross and the news of that death, burial, and resurrection would now have a chance to go to all the world. Nothing would stop the message. God planned all this. He orchestrated all this so you and I could be saved, but that the world may hear about the Savior. And prior to the Pax Romana, it was impossible for that message to be heralded to all the world. But now with Roman rule, and they ruled for over 200 years. That's a pretty good window of opportunity to get the gospel to the regions beyond. I, that's so exciting. I know, I know it's teaching. I know it's didactic. I know it's a little, a little stiff for you this morning, but thinking about Christ and thinking about Christmas and, and thinking about Christianity, these considerations are, are good for us to, to muse upon. Think about communication at the time of this Pax Romana, this time of peace, all-time high communication in human history. Why? Because the Romans brought a unifying language. It's called the Koine Greek, common Greek. That meant that most of the known world being ruled by Rome, they understood the same language. Therefore, the gospel could be understood more than any other time. This is so exciting that a, a common language and a common way to communicate not in just the gospel, but in trade and commerce, new ideas, culture, religion, philosophy. Most importantly, the spread of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ could be all through the world at that time. And then consider the comparisons of Christ's birth with that of other famous historical figures at that time. That the world readily accepted as being who they claimed to be. See, there's always been opposition to Jesus. He's just an itinerant preacher. No, he was God Amen. come in the flesh. He was the Son of God who would be the Savior of the world. Let's just take one example, and I'll mention some others, but just one. Julius Caesar, we know about him. No one doubted his existence or his influence on the world. His campaigns are written down. They're known about. They're legendary. Today they're taught as fact and not lore. But nobody today ever met him or knew about him. They're just going by some of the manuscripts that were written about him and his accomplishments. The validity of his leadership are, yes, they're based on ancient writings, but they're relatively small in documentation. They talk about his how he had his campaigns in France, it calls the Gallic Wars, in 1 BC. But you know, compared to Jesus Christ, the documentation of his manuscript versus Jesus' manuscript, it doesn't even make sense. I'll just give you a few of the wholesale names of people that were at the time of Christ and shortly after. Julius Caesar, Herodias, this, this scholar, Sophocles. Um, Erepides, Aristotle, listen to the documentation. This is physical, historical evidence. Julius Caesar and all his antics and all his accomplishments, 10 manuscripts mention it. Herodias, eight, only eight. Sophocles, 
193. Well, he blew those guys away. Aristotle. We always hear about Aristotle, right? The philosopher. 49. Now listen to this. Jesus Christ. 24,000 plus. Just get your calculator out and put this in here, and I'll tell you, you add up the known minds of that, and that's not all of them, the known minds of that, that collectively, and just the documentation historically of Jesus Christ compared to them, and the most famous, Christ beats them 98.92%. 98.92%. 98! 0.92%. That's a lot of documentation. And listen, listen. This is with the caveat that Rome and the Jews and the Greeks that hated Jesus did everything they could to squash the evidence. Get rid of the evidence. How much more evidence would there be? had they not did their dastardly deeds. Oh, man. He was hated. They denied him. They destroyed him. Oh, we put him on a cross. We killed him. They did everything. They discredited him. But they couldn't keep him from rising from the dead, bless God. And now Jesus Christ is known throughout the whole world. He may not be believed on. He may not be respected. The world's religions still reject him, but you cannot doubt the evidence of him. We're talking about considerations of Christmas, of the Christ and of Christianity. Hey, I'm on that team. You know what they were afraid of? They were afraid that the region would come to know Jesus and follow after that crackpot preacher. It's even documented in Scripture. Acts chapter 17, verse 6, it says this of the church. These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. They tried to get rid of them. They said, here they come. They're coming into our town. They're coming into our village. And I want you to know, Jesus was not only hated by the Romans and the Greeks and the Jews, but the leadership of those countries, those nationalities those thought processes, those philosophies. You know who hated Jesus? The religious crowd. The Pharisees, the high priests, the scribes, the hierarchy of religion. They still hate him today. Jesus said, they hate me, they're going to hate you. Church, you better button up because it's coming. I don't, I don't believe I'm going through the tribulation, but... I'll tell you what, if the Lord tarries his coming, we're going to go through some things. We will go through some things. And he was hated by the Pharisees and the leadership, and his disciples were hated. You know who else hated Jesus? The merchants hated Jesus. Because with merchants, it's always about the bottom line. It's always about what they gain. And at that time, you know what they were into? Relics and making their little gods. And what happened was, People started getting saved and coming to know Christ, and they didn't need any more gods fashioned by hands of men. Amen. And it made them mad. And that's why they said, these that have turned the world upside down, how come either also? That's why Jason in the church house that you'll read about in Scripture that was with him, they took him out and they beat him, and they threatened him, don't preach in this name anymore. They couldn't stop it. 
They couldn't stop it because God had opened. He had opened travel and education and communication. Why? That the gospel may go forth. Oh, I got to hasten on. Consider the many prophecies ascribed as proof to Christ and Christmas. The Christmas was prophesied in great number. Listen to this. Out of 469 prophecies concerning Old Testament, 467 were proven to be reliable and and, and viable. I don't know. That's by dishonest people. I, I tend to believe 469 out of 469. But even the dirty-handed ones couldn't stop it. Hundreds of years before the prophecy. You know, we read about Isaiah and all his prophecies. That was 700 years before Jesus ever came. We're talking about hundreds of years of prophecies. Micah's prophecies, Zechariah's or Zephaniah's prophecies. All the prophecies concerning Christ. What prophecies? That a virgin would be conceived and born, Isaiah 7. That a child would have a divine nature, Isaiah 7, 14. That the one born would have and be the eternal Savior of the world. That the Savior would come to, listen now, both the Jew and the Gentile. Jewish mind couldn't even wrap their, they couldn't think that way. Isaiah 49, verse 6. That he would perform numerous miracles authenticating his claims of Messiahship and Lordship. Isaiah 29, Isaiah 35, the deaf will hear, the blind will see, the lame will walk, the the mute will speak. That was all fulfilled in Jesus. That he would suffer greatly, he'd be crucified for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, 5. He would bear the sins of many and become an intercessor, Isaiah 53, 12. He would be rejected by his own. Mm, 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 mm. Mm -mm 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 -mm. (laughs) Psalm 118.22 The stone which the builders refused is because the headstone of the corner. When they were building the temple. They they started out wrong from the very get-go. The cornerstone that everything was to rest upon. They thought, ah, that's not the right one. They were not going to use that one. Sorry, Tom. They put it aside. And they built their building. And Jesus came along preaching and said, hey, destroy this place. (laughs) You know, that prophecy came out where he said, there's going to be one stone upon another. He was talking about him, not the stinking building. It wasn't in good shape anyway. They forgot the main thing. The cornerstone that everything is built upon. But later on, you know what they found? Remember in 70 AD, Titus went in and he destroyed Jerusalem? All all that gold and all that stuff that was in the temple, it melted clear out of all that. You talk about picking up gold by the side of the road, Jeremiah. After that, they could go by and literally get the gold. But see, all that edifice, all that glory of of Jerusalem in the temple, they missed it. It was not that. It was the Christ. 
It was the foundation stone. And today, people are missing it. Maybe someone here is missing it. You're trying to build a life on sand. You're trying, to, you're trying to build a life. You're trying to get to heaven on your own good works and your own deeds. And you must have the foundation stone. Jesus Christ. Amen. History tells us of Jesus Christ. All these prophecies tell us of Jesus Christ. I've got to quit. Consider the many historical evidences, not just of first Christmas. The prophecies, the star, the witnesses, the slaughter of the children by Herod. It's all in there. The Magi and their journey later. It's all in here. How about this? How about the change to a man named Saul who tried to destroy the church but later preached Christ? How about the rapid formation of the church? How about the explosion of manuscripts and preservation of the word? How about the fact that the original 11 disciples, we know what happened to Judas, and the early church followed fathers, and the church followed Christ in spite of threats of death. Jesus is on a cross, and all men forsook him. There was just a little group under his cross. His mother, other Mary, a couple of the women, John, the beloved. He said to John, John, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. God entrusted his mother to the care of John. He said, you love your mother, you're going to make sure your mom's okay, amen. Just a handful. Peter followed afar off. The other ones ran. Why'd they run? They feared they'd be arrested. They feared they'd be, they'd be beaten. They feared they'd go to prison. They feared they'd die like Christ was dying on the cross. Now tell me, after his resurrection, what happened? They all got bold. They all risked their lives. They all went everywhere preaching the word of God. How could that happen? They believed. They believed, they saw the resurrected Christ, and they went everywhere preaching that message of salvation because God came at the right time, the perfect time, and that roads were open and communication was open and travel was open. There's so many historical documents that far await any negative documents. Oh, I don't have time. We could do archaeology. We could study the adherence uh, we, we, all these things, these people that suffered after they believed. The Bible says that the church was under great persecution and the seed of the saints, or the blood of the saints was seed. That meant the more the lost saw the professors standing for Christ, living for Christ, dying for Christ, the more they said, now wait a minute, nobody dies for a falsehood. Nobody dies for a charlatan. And they heard the message and believed, and the church was just exploding. What? One day it's preached 3,000 are saved and baptized. Another day it's preached 5,000 saved and baptized. The church was just busting out. Why? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. What? To be the savior of the world. And all these scaredy cats... Now they're bold witnesses. Peter was crucified, history, records, 
tell us upside down because he didn't feel worthy of being crucified up, right up. James, the son of Alphaeus, Bartholomew, Andrew, Philip, Simon, all died crucifixion. History tells us that James was stoned. Matthew died by the sword. James, the son of Zebedee, the sword. Uh, Thaddeus, arrows. Thomas with spears. Paul was beheaded. John was bold in oil. They tried to kill him on the Isle of Patmos, Revelation chapter 1. But he didn't die. Why? God wanted him to live to write the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's the only original that died of natural causes. I got to stop. I don't want to stop, but I got to stop. There's so many unbelievable documented proofs of Christmas and Christ, but here it is. Only by faith you believe. You receive. You live for him only by faith. I'll conclude today. Our considerations of the very first Christmas. We have discovered and reviewed afresh the unbelievable, overwhelming evidence and documentation, substantiated proofs of the first Christmas and the birth of Jesus Christ. But friend, it's only by faith. You come to faith and belief in Jesus Christ. I don't know. Maybe there's someone here today. You, you know, you say, well, I, I believe in Jesus. That's not enough. There are people that believed in Julius Caesar. There are people that believed in Aristotle and so forth. But nobody believes on them to be their Savior. But the Bible tells us, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He's the only Savior. There's none other. Amen. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father but by me. No other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus Christ. And I know we're all here. We're all on the same team. But maybe not everybody's on the team. Just because you go to church don't make you a Christian. Just because you believe in Jesus Christ historically doesn't make you a Christian. You must believe on him in your heart. And here's what you do, friend, if you're here today. Please, don't let another Christmas season pass and you not be a real believer. It'll do you no good. You don't get bonus points when you die and stand before God and say, well, I, I did Christmas. Did you believe on my son, Jesus Christ? I sent him to you. I planned the whole thing out. That the gospel will go forth and someday come to your doorstep. Here's what you must do, my friend. You must repent. What does that mean? Turn from your way of living and thinking and turn to God. I tell you, Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. You must believe. Believe means to trust or take hold of, place faith in and on the person of Jesus Christ. And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. You want your family to be a Christian family? Then you believe on Christ. Amen. And then you share it with them and watch how many come to know him too. Receive him. Or accept him. Call upon him. The Bible says, But as many as received him, to them he gave you power to become the sons of God, even them that believe on his name. John 1.12, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then follow him. Follow him. 1 John 4.15, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, 
and he in God. Considerations of Christmas. In just a little bit, we'll be done. We're going to have a baptism this morning. That's a way for somebody to declare, hey, I believed on Christ. I want to live for Christ. Maybe you're not saved. Come and be saved this morning. Uh, Tom, you can come, and the musician, please come. At an invitation, this is the opportunity for you to come and believe these considerations of Christmas, of Christ, and of Christianity. But you must repent. You must believe by faith in Jesus Christ. You must ask him to forgive you of your sins, to come into your heart and your life and be your Savior, and then live for him. Let's bow our heads if we would, every head bowed. We're going to close. Before we do, I don't do this often. I do not do this often. Sometimes at funerals, sometimes weddings, to get opportunity. But today, friend, if you're here and you're just going to church, you're somewhat religious, you understand some. But have you truly ever believed on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? The evidence is clear. The Holy Spirit's working in your heart right now. He's the convictor. He's the convincer. You could pray a prayer like this. Dear God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus Christ to come and live, die on the cross for my sins. I'm sorry for my many sins, and right now, dear Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of all my sins and to come into my heart and life and be my Savior. Lord, please help me from this day forward to confess you before men and to live for you the best I know how. Thank you for saving my soul. In Jesus' name, amen.